We can say amen to that one. I, how many of you guys said that yesterday? God, make it warm. It, it's incredible the, how quickly our, our little kids encounter this problem when they start to believe in God and it's like, this coldness sucks and I need it to go away. And God, I believe that you hear my prayer. Would you come and make it warm? And then they get disappointed. <laughs> my parents told me that God, God loves me, that he hears my prayers, that he's good, that he's more powerful than every, anything, and I'm asking him, you know, authentically, because this cold is really cold, and uh, I'm not sure what it's good for. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so why wouldn't God come make it warm? And of course, we watch the video, and we laugh, and it's like, oh, it's so cute. But yet... We, as we grow up, maybe we stop complaining about the cold. Maybe you don't. Um, I never did. But uh, we start bringing that logic to other things in our lives. Uh, God, if you're good, if you're all-powerful, I'm not as concerned about winter, but I am concerned about my friend that's dying or this thing that's going on halfway across the world. And could you just stop it and end it? Or this sickness, this addiction, this, you know, the suffering, this pain, this evil that's going on. And I've been told, you know, by many people, by the Bible, uh, that you're good, you're powerful, you're loving. And it just doesn't make sense to me why you wouldn't make this go away. It is one of the primary questions that has, have driven many theologians and philosophers for thousands of years. Uh, and so this morning we're going to start a new series that's going to go on for four weeks called If God is Good, uh, alluding to the, basically all the questions that we ask after that phrase, if God is good, then what about this? People from Plato to Buddha to Augustine to Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and hundreds of others have wrestled profoundly with this question. And so, confession, I'm not as smart as those guys. Uh, and they, I don't know if they came up with like complete answers, but they wrestled with them long enough that they had glimpses of truth in what they talked about, what they wrote about. And so all I have to offer you in this series is, is not answers, but maybe some direction, um, some guidance, uh, a way forward that allows us to embrace uh, this God that the Bible speaks of that we have faith in uh, without denying critical elements of who he is and what a reality is. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity those who follow Jesus, uh, creates rather than solves the problem of pain. For pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, he had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. So C.S. Lewis said that the belief in this Christian God actually doesn't solve the problem of pain. It's actually what creates this problem. 
There's a Jewish rabbi uh, who wrote a best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, because he had to understand the tragedy in his life. His only son, Aaron, had died of a rare disease. He aged prematurely, looked like an old man by the time he was a teenager, and he died in his teens. The rabbi stated that, I believed that I was following God's way and I was doing his work. I was living in a way that honored him. How could this be happening to me and my family? If God existed... If he was minimally fair, let alone loving and forgiving, how could he do this to me? And even if I could persuade myself that I deserved this punishment for some sin of neglect or pride that I was not aware of, on what grounds did my son Aaron have to suffer? Julia was the most loving, friendly, cooperative wife you could imagine. She was also a committed Christian with deep faith and trust in God. Her husband Barry seemed... A likable enough guy, but he had some deep hurts. His parents were divorced, his father used to beat him, and he had learned to distrust the world and God until he met Julia. Julia was the world to him, a new world. She taught him to trust again, to trust God too. They were deeply in love. Both knew that their marriage would have its problems because of Barry's background, but both were willing to risk it and work at it. Twenty years later, after many ups and downs, Barry has left Julia and has become an alcoholic, because one summer night, a police officer came to their door with the unbelievable news. Their teenage son, the apple of their eye, who was planning to enter college in the fall, had been killed in a car accident. Barry simply collapsed. He refused to talk to Julia and blamed everything on her and drank himself into oblivion. Julia was left with her teenage daughter, Jill. Jill saw the sufferings her father put her mother through and vowed a war on men for the rest of her life. She became a hard-hating person, hating God above all, the God she trusted for 15 years and who had let her down so horribly in this moment. If God were real, she thought, he would have seen her breaking point and not brought her past it. This is a fictional story that one of the authors that I'm going to refer to in a moment told uh, but cases like this are quite factual. These type of stories happen all the time. Uh, there's a pastor who had served God faithfully for years. He had three kids. Uh, his middle son grows up. Son loves Jesus dearly, goes to Bible college in the middle of Saskatchewan, where he said, Jesus, make it warm many, many times. The joy of the Lord oozes out of him. He was a gifted musician, loves to lead others in worship. After Bible college, he gets married and begins to serve at a church in B.C. He was hired as a worship pastor. Shortly after that, in the summer, he was driving to Calgary for a friend's wedding. Him and his wife, his older brother, and his older brother's wife, who was pregnant, got into a car accident. A semi tipped on top of the car killing this middle son and leaving a young widow behind. A father who served God faithfully lost a son. A brother and his wife uh, lost their brother. He left the widow. Uh, that very night, they had to do an emergency baby delivery in Calgary that same night. And you can just imagine this brother that lost his younger brother, but also gained a son in the same night, the amount of emotions going on in that moment. 
This was a friend of mine. He was a better friend of my wife's and their family. They grew up together uh, at the church that my wife grew up in. Uh, and this one of the fir- that was one of the first times that I remember really asking this question. Because out of all the guys, all the friends that I had, all the people that I met, this is one of those guys that um, was going to do great things for God. And he just looked at his, he had a great family, amazing gifts, and this just suddenly happens. It's like, God, why would that happen? Out of all people, why this kid? And we tend not to think of these questions until it kind of hits you in the face. My wife bought me a pair of shoes on a really good deal quite a while ago. Some nice dress shoes. You know, any of you guys, wives, they buy you just clothes. It was a good deal. I found a good deal, so I just bought them for you. Hopefully it works. And I looked at them, and I was like, oh, they look fine and nice and appear to be the right size. So, um, And then just sat in the closet for, you know, the better part of a year. And then this past summer, I had a wedding. I was, I was performing music at a wedding, and so I was getting all dressed up, and like it always seems to happen at weddings, we're running behind. So we're getting dressed, and we're running out the door, and I'm like, sweet, I get to wear my new dress shoes, and I pull the box out with my new dress shoes on it. I take the shoes out, put, one, put my left shoe on, that's great. Go to put my right shoe on and realize that it's also a left shoe. <laughs> Two left shoes. I didn't even try them on. I didn't even put them on my feet until that moment that you needed them. And then when you put them on your feet, you realize that you were completely unprepared for this moment. And I feel like this is often how we approach the problem of pain, evil, suffering. We don't think about it until it's in the moment. And then when we go to think about it, we realize that we actually have all of these questions that we've never really addressed or dealt with before. And now we have to deal with that grief, that problem, as well as all this critical issues of faith and belief that we have all in the same moment. And so my hope is as we go through the series that um, I know that some of us are in the maybe middle of pain and suffering. Um, We know that many in our world are. But to do a little bit of work into the mystery of the problem of pain, suffering, and evil. Not because it's fun, but because it's necessary. Uh, Because we have a world that is full of people looking for God and trying to understand how God responds, exists in the middle of it all. So the books that uh, I'm I'm drawing from quite a few books in this series, I'm just going to, I'll just list a few for you. Um, There's one book called Evil and the Justice of God written by N.T. Wright. Uh, This is available at the Resource Center for Purchase. Um, It's a pretty good book. I like most things that N.T. Wright writes. So, Uh, Second one, a book called Making Sense Out of Suffering by Peter Kreeft. And this is um, 
I would highly recommend this book. Don't judge a book by its cover, okay? I, looked at, I, I got this book and I was like, this looks terrible. Uh, and I often do judge, judge a book by its cover, if I'm honest. But this one, I'm like, okay, I had, I had to read it for one of my classes. And I said, uh, honestly, phenomenal book. Just deals with the topic, the tension, the mystery incredibly well. A uh, bunch of what I'm going to say today, I'm basically stealing right from him. Uh, the Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the Crucified God by Jürgen Moltmann, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton, Where is God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey. Uh, so there's a, there's a handful of books there that are you know, great resources. I'm going to draw from a bunch of them. Uh, but this morning what I want to address is two problems. Everybody say two. Two problems. The first one being a philosophical problem. And the second one being a biblical problem. The philosophical problem that I'm going to refer to has been pondered in a number of ways since the beginning of philosophical thought. C.S. Lewis said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. If God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished, but the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain. And many great thinkers have articulated something very, very similar um, to that thought process. So we could, we could summarize their thoughts like this. The problem is typically mapped out by, by these four points, which followers of Jesus throughout history would say these are um, important beliefs to the Christian faith. That one, God exists. Two, that God is all-powerful. Three, that God is all-good. And four, that evil exists. We've clung to these truths, yet on the surface they don't seem to be logically agreeable. If God is all-powerful, then why is there evil? Maybe God is all-good, but he's not all-powerful, and that's why there's evil. Or maybe God's not good. Maybe God doesn't exist. Um, we're going to look at 10 easy answers that people go to to try and answer this question. The 10 easy answers neglect one of those truths. And some of them you'll be familiar with as we go through them. You'll say, oh, you know, I've talked to people like that, or I've thought that. Um, some of them have been popular in the past, but maybe aren't as popular now. But basically what people do is they deny one of those four truths, and when you deny one of those four truths, it's easy to actually answer the problem of evil. But if you embrace all four truths, uh, like followers of Jesus claim, then you're kind of left with this dilemma. So the first easy answer, one, no God, and you can follow these in your words to live by. There's some fill in the blanks for you there. Um, these are all answers that deny God's reality. One, no God which is atheism. And the existence of evil is one of the biggest arguments for atheism. It's easier to deal with the idea of evil if you forfeit the idea of God. C.S. Lewis explains, well, that if there is no God, no infinite goodness, where did we get the idea of evil from? So he argues that because there's evil, and we have this idea of evil, that, there's, that we were actually created for a different world, for a better world, which is, which is proof that there is something beyond evil. 
G.K. Chesterton says that the problem of pleasure is the issue for people that believe in no God for atheists, just like the problem of evil is the issue for us who believe in a good, all-powerful God. We don't have time. I'm not going to address each of, the, each of these answers, try and refute them. I just want to outline what many people have historically gone to to try and answer this dilemma. Uh, if you pick up the, the Kreef book, he, does a, uh, he goes through it more thoroughly. Uh, the fairy tale God, number two. We deny God's reality by creating a fairy tale God, uh, referred to as demythologism. Those who don't like the sound or reputation of atheism but kind of share those sentiments, might move towards this. They say that there is truth mythically, but not necessarily literally. The concept of miracle is useful when we want to express our wonder at the mountains, the oceans, at cute little babies, at Jesus being a nice person. Uh, The idea of a virgin birth is a mythic way of saying that Jesus was somebody special. The resurrection did happen, but it happened in the hearts of people. It didn't actually literally happen. So they take the biblical truths, but they kind of put them into myth. The third easy answer of denying God's reality is the subjective God, psychologism. Another way of denying God's reality, which overlaps with the fairy tale God, is that the God outside of us is rejected, but they avoid the term atheism by replacing with the God inside of us. Truth for me replaces an ultimate truth out there. My God replaces the God. This God fails because it struggles to be honest and it struggles to actually be livable. Because God cannot create us because we create Him. He can't save us. He's not stronger than death, pain, and sin. In fact, He's only as strong and wise and able and powerful as we ourselves are. But you would probably recognize that as a very dominant type of thinking in our world. Truth for me is truth for me. No ultimate power, no ultimate truth. So those are some, a couple of examples of how people might deny God's reality to make sense of this problem of evil or pain. Uh, the next few answers deny that God is all-powerful. So some might say, uh, believe in many gods. And in fact, this is, this is not really popular in the West, but it would have been very popular in the biblical era in which we have most of our uh, biblical, uh, most of our scriptures were written. I use the word old simply because this belief was very dominant in the biblical era, but not, uh, as I said, it's not common here. Paganism is popular because it has gods, however weak, however bribable, we must worship something, and if it's the gods above, if it's not the gods above us, it's the gods within us. Uh, but this is believing in many gods out there. If there are many faces in the world, there are many gods in the world, this is an easy answer actually for the problem of evil. If the good is weak, that means that God is weak, the God of good is weak. If evil strong, it means that God of evil is strong. Uh, the Greek and Roman people believed in this polytheism. They believed in lots of different gods. And so they didn't have any issues when they talked about evil and good uh, because they just thought it represented the many different gods that were out there. So many gods, polytheism. Uh, or another way of people that deny God's power uh, is the naturalistic God, the new scientific paganism, 
So it basically holds that whatever science cannot prove does not exist. So only God, so the only God that scientism admits is nature, the laws of nature, because it's all that it can actually tangibly prove or be observed. It does not accept anything supernatural. A naturalist of God allows something to, somebody to believe in God and even to believe in a God that loves, but it doesn't really have an answer for the problem of death. Death is nature's trump card, and it takes, a supernatural to believe, it takes something supernatural to trump death. The naturalistic God. Or the third option of denying God's power is believing in two gods. Dualism. Don't worry, there's not going to be any test at the end of this. I'm just trying to give you a, an outline. Uh, if you believe in two gods, you can figure out the problem of evil easily. One god is good and one god is evil. And one god isn't necessarily more powerful than the other one. Um, they're just battling it out and we're kind of, we get to observe and experience the reality of this battle. In fact, many Christians actually are practical dualists because they almost attribute as much power to Satan as they do with God, which is not actually the biblical picture of Satan. So maybe there is a God, maybe he's all-powerful, but perhaps we can get around the problem of evil by saying he's not all good. So this is where the next set of easy answers come from, denial of God's goodness First way we do, or one of the ways that people do that is, is creating a bad God. We call the Satanism. It's the worship of Satan as God. It answers the problem of evil, all right. Evil is powerful in this world because Satan is in charge, not God. The dark side is where the power is, and if we want to be on the winning side, we should join him. But like dualism, evil can't be greater than good because evil is bent good, disease good, or a parasite of good. It corrupts good. It, it's not a whole thing in and of itself. Darkness isn't a thing. It's just the absence of light. So evil only corrupts what is good. St. Augustine said, If God is, why is there evil? But if God is not, why is there good? So if you believe in an evil God, then you actually have to answer the opposite question of why is there good in this world? Another easy answer, the blob God. I like that one. Uh, also known as pantheism. So pan, it comes from the Greek word pan, uh, which means all. God is all. God is all things. Um, God is simply everything, everything in general and nothing in particular. It's attractive to people because nothing's forbidden and everything is divine. Everything is spiritual. God is the force, and the force has a good side and a dark side. Pantheism is also attractive to people because it removes fear of death. We are all God. Everything is God, and God doesn't die. The problem is that you cannot pray to love, worship, or trust the blob. Everything is an illusion, and nothing is actual reality. So another way people go is the snob God also known as deism. Deism is simply a belief that there's this God who created the world, like he created an alarm clock, he wound it up and let it tick and walked away. In fact, I think this is probably likely the answer that many of us have faith kind of go to, is that God, we believe in a good creator, we believe that in intelligent design, we 
we have faith in some kind of God, but he's distant and he's far away. He's not interested in my life or in this world. And we're kind of here to sort it out. The fourth thing is the truth that we talked about was evil exists. Uh, and the last easy answer is a denial of evil that we'll call idealism. Evil doesn't exist at all. We can call this idealism, even though it has many forms, Buddhism and Christian science would be a couple of these examples. It's easy to deny God, his power, his goodness, because you can't see God. But, you can't, um, but in some ways we can't see evil either. It is possible to deny evil. You can't necessarily see evil any more than you can see goodness, but we have an inner eye called the conscience. And this eye does see evil and goodness. So people might deny evil theoretically, but if we actually take a step back, we all believe in things that are not necessarily tangible or provable, like love, like goodness, like evil. And so you have to deny those realities of the human experience if you were to actually embrace the type of thinking of idealism. The most popular answers to this great mystery come from some combination of these 10 easy answers. The force of Star Wars. I just went and saw the new Star Wars movie. I actually hadn't watched any of them, really. Um, so over the Christmas break, we, we went through all six. Boom, one day after day, and then we finished it all off by going to number seven. Um, interesting. It was, uh, what can I say? It was, it was pretty good. Um, but... The force in Star Wars is like a combination of number five, the naturalist of God, with number eight, the blob God. Embrace the force. It's everywhere. Many other responses combine number two. I would say uh, in our modern world, a lot of people combine number two, a fairy tale God, with number three, the subjective God. That there is truth. It's knowable. Um, but it's not literal. And what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. So the problem of evil, that God exists, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-good, that evil exists, and the invitation that Jesus brings us is to actually embrace these realities. And how do we do that? That's the problem, the philosophical problem. Secondly, I want to talk about the biblical problem. The biblical problem is summarized in Psalm 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 1 with me. I don't think we have it on the screen this morning, so you can read along with me um, or just listen. Listen to the underlying thought process of Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and, though, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They're like Chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. 
So here's the biblical problem. Is the Jewish people were given a law and they believed in a God because of his revelation to them that if they honored God, if they were obedient to God with their lives, then God would bless them. For those that were wicked, that denied God, that didn't live in line with how he asked them to live, they would be cursed. This is what Psalm 1 summarizes very well. We can call it retributive suffering, retributive theology. Do good, get blessed. Do bad, get hurt. It's parenting 101. <laughs> if you do this, then you'll get this. But if you don't do this, then you're going to get this. I do this all the time. Retributive parenting, retributive theology. This is throughout the entire Bible, and you actually can't ignore it. You can't say God never said that. God doesn't act like that because it's everywhere. If you go to uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 28 and Leviticus 26, um, we won't read through those chapters now, but go on your own time, read those chapters, and you'll realize that this retributive theology is critical and foundational to the entire Jewish people. Those are whole chapters on, if you obey my commands, be my people, I'll be your God, and these are all the good things that are going to happen to you. Your city, your country, offspring, cattle, herds, land, you're going to conquer enemies, you're going to be abundant in prosperity. In 28 verse 15 it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then uh, the exact same things that he was going to get blessed with, it's like the, the opposite evil stuff. You're going to lose uh, your, your power, your herds, your enemies are going to defeat you, you're going to have family breakdown, there's going to be disease, there's going to be plagues, there's going to be slavery. And you, you read this, uh, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, this whole list of stuff. Bad stuff that happens if you don't obey God, good stuff that happens if you do. If you obey God, blessings will come. If you disobey God, he will judge you and hardship will come to you. This idea is found thousands and thousands of times over. Uh, that's not like an actual number. I'm just, I just said that. I don't know how many times. But it's, it's throughout the whole scripture. People don't like it. But, but the thing is, if you actually want to understand the biblical response to evil and suffering, you have to come to that realization as foundational in the Bible. But here's the biblical problem, is that it's not true of the people that follow God's experience. In fact, if you read through the Psalms, if you read through Ecclesiastes, if you read through all of the minor prophets, you read through the book of Job. The major theme of what God's people are trying to come to grips with is, God, I'm trying to obey you and honor you, but I'm suffering. And the wicked are over there, and they don't follow you or love you, and they're thriving. So I believe in you. I understand this foundational idea that if I honor you, you're going to bless me. 
If I don't, you're going to curse me, but this is not the reality that I live in. That's the biblical problem. But yet God doesn't actually go back on what he says. There's, he still holds to what he says. So you live in this tension, particularly in the Old Testament, that what God said and laid out in the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, first five books of the Bible, the law that Moses was given on Mount Sinai, those foundational ideas are not necessarily true to the experience of the Jewish people. And we've experienced that too. God, I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to live right. But why is this happening to me? Meanwhile, my, this other guy I know, he's living like hell, but he's, he's got all this blessing coming out of everywhere. What's the deal? Ecclesiastes deals with this retributive problem. Uh, he says this, the writer says this, In this meaningless life of mine I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. He's saying, what's the point, God? What's the point of being righteous if I just get what the wicked deserve, if the righteous get what I deserve? If you go through the book of Job, many scholars believe that Job was the first a biblical book that we have that was written. The whole book is a wrestling with this idea of retributive theology or suffering. Job was blameless and upright. It says that he feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons. He had three daughters. He had tons of cattle, servants. He was the greatest of all the people in the East, it says. And you look at Job and you say, that makes sense. That lines up with what we see in the Mosaic Law, that if you you're upright, if you're honorable, that God's going to bless you. He's got all the land, all the cattle, all the family. Everything's going for him. Makes sense. Yet Satan came and wreaked havoc on his life. He loses oxen, his donkeys. His servants are killed. There's death of his sheep. His camels are stolen. His brother's house is destroyed. His sons and daughters all die. He receives sores from his head to his, his toe, toes. He lo loses his income and his wealth and his status. And then Job prays one of the darkest prayers you'll ever read in Scripture in chapter 3. And then you go on like a 35-chapter uh, dialogue between him and his friends. And his friends are telling him, Job, the thing that's wrong is that you got sin in your life. That all this sucky stuff is happening to you because you've actually dishonored God with your life. And Job says, no, I'm, I'm actually honoring God. I haven't even cursed God. Even though all this stuff is happening, I haven't cursed him. I'm still honoring him. I don't know why this is happening. And they, 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 they keep telling him over and over and over again that there's something wrong and you're not being honest with us. And if you could just confess, if you could repent, if you would go back to God, then God would figure it out that he'd bless you again. And Job's like, no, I, I didn't do anything wrong. God is silent throughout the whole book until chapter 38. In fact, when you read the book of Job, it feels like this long, redundant thing that you keep waiting and waiting and waiting on God to give you an answer. And I think sometimes the biblical writer did that on purpose because isn't that what suffering and pain often feels like? We're waiting. We got questions. We got mysteries. Everything, all the answers people are giving us doesn't really fit. And then finally, God speaks in chapter 38. And God says things like, 
this goes on for like four chapters. So I'll just give you an example. He says things like, Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Question after question after question, God gives to Job, basically saying, Job, who are you to question me? In fact, there is so much mystery, so many things you don't even understand. God responds to Job by by asking him to consider the mysteries that are beyond his grasp. And here's Job's response. He says, Surely I spoke of the things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And the God responds to Job's friends by saying that he's angry with them because they have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Wait a second. Weren't his friends speaking this retributive theology that was all throughout the Mosaic Law? Yeah, but God says, they have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. There's this tension. And the questions and the struggle of Job honored God more than the confidence and logical consistency of his friends. Let me say that one more time. The questions and the struggle of Job honored God more than the confidence and the logical consistency of his friends. You see, the problem of evil and suffering is not really a problem because it's illogical. We call it a problem because we don't understand it. But that's not the same as saying a circle is a square. That would be illogical. That doesn't work. But the problem of evil and pain is actually more of a mystery than it is illogical. The ancients came to this problem and they didn't reject God. They actually embraced the mystery. And they realized that these things are even beyond their mental capacity and it drew them to worship. It drew them to bend their knee. And for many of us today, it draws us to turn our backs on God. But I think the riddles of God prove more satisfying than the easy answers proposed without God. I was sitting on the couch with my son, my youngest son, the other two nights ago, and he starts calling me son. He's like, son, come over here. <laughs> and then I, so I play along. I'm like, okay, dad. And he says to me, go to bed, son. It's past your bedtime. <laughs> and I thought he was cute, and I gave him a hug, and I was like, ah. And, and he said, son, you need to shave. <laughs> son, your face, your face pokes me when you're hugging me, he said to me. And so he's sitting on my lap, and he's having this conversation with me, and then he says, he's looking at me, he's like, son, you've really grown up lately. You're (laughs) getting quite big. And, And it's a common occurrence in my life, in our world, that we switch roles with God, don't we? God, let me help you understand. God, you got to answer to me. Yet those of us who know the narrative scripture should understand that putting ourselves in God's shoes is foolishness, and it actually leaves us, leads us further and further away from reality, further and further away from light and into darkness. 
when we try and take the position of God. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Logic only takes us too far. Logic brings us to the cliff of mystery. And we come to to face-to-face with questions, with wonder. And why is it that a story, a movie, a song, a lyric, a poem, a sunset, a cityscape, or something like that often speaks to us in a more profound way than sheerly facts or science or logic? There's a mystery that I think our soul is drawn to. It's beyond logic. It's not illogical. It's just not able to be captured in our human logic. As we close, I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, But as we close, I want to draw your attention to this quote that G.K. Chesterton gives. And one of my favorite books, he wrote a book called Orthodoxy, and it says, he says this, Imagination does not breed insanity. Exactly what does breed insanity is reason. Poets do not go mad, but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad, and cashiers, but creative artists very seldom. I am not, as will be, as will be seen, in any sense attacking logic, which is true. If you read Orthodoxy, it's very um, logic, very sound. It's amazing. He says, I'm not attacking logic. I only say that this danger does, does lie in logic, but it does not lie in imagination. The general fact is simple. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so to make it finite. To accept accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. And here's my favorite part. The poet only asks to get his heads into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. If you just come to this morning and you don't kind of follow us in the rest of the series, you're going to be left disappointed. And you might leave really disappointed at the end of the four talks as well. Um, (laughs) but all that to say what I want to attempt to do over the next few weeks is dive into this mystery Uh, and if we're going to try and figure out the right answer to every problem in our world uh, we're going to we're going to be overwhelmed we may turn our backs on God, but if we actually realize that my logic only brings me so far, that I have lots of questions, and I don't know how it all works, and if you're in that place, then you're in good company because most of the writers in the Bible are in, this, in the exact same shoes as you are. But it drew them to awe, to wonder, to mystery, to worship, to an answer that was beyond what could fit in their heads, an answer that only God, uh, that, that only God could respond to. And I think in a time like this, in a world like the one we live in, I think it's about time that we stop just trying to figure out the right answer and we just came to our knees and said, 
like Job. And these things are too wonderful for me. They're beyond my conception. And that's why you're God and I'm not, and I'm not going to try and switch roles with you. Why don't you stand as we sing together?